Hi, everyone. I'm Terry Schmidt. Welcome to the Friends of NPACE podcast. Um, I'm the executive director of NPACE, and today I get to chat with, I'm going to let him introduce himself. Go for it. <laughs> My name is Sean. I'm a, an acute care nurse practitioner. I've been a nurse for almost 20 years, an acute care MP for over 10. Um, I've worked in every kind of ICU you can think of. I've also done travel nursing, and I currently work in a level two um, urban trauma center where I work with the critical care services that provide critical care services to three different ICUs. How you doing, Terry? I'm good. Sean has a last name. It's Dent. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about where people can find you later. I'm good. I we uh, We're going to get tangential off the beginning. So... We're supposed to talk about acute care NPs and stuff, but we're going to talk about you first. I was a travel nurse once upon a time, many moons mm -hmm. ago. Did you like that? Um, I liked it, but didn't it, it didn't fit into our lifestyle the time that we did it. So mm, gotcha. newlyweds, had a new home, you yeah. know, bought a house, all that stuff, and then decided the last minute we were going to travel. So we traveled for half a year. Yeah. Um, trying to manage traveling and a home was a little difficult. Um, yeah. Both my wife and I, my wife is also a nurse. Um, we probably, that was probably where we grew the most in our profession because you, as you found out and everyone else finds out that like you hit the ground running and yeah. uh, there's no, there's no training or education. It's here's where everything is. Here's how to find here. Here's what we do. Best of luck. Yep. Yes. <laughs> you definitely have to have sound principles, know how to assess a patient, know how to manage a crisis. And the rest of it kind of falls into line, you know, policies and procedures. Me. <laughs> you, I think that's where I discovered my, you know, being able to be my own advocate as well as find my voice as a, you know, a patient advocate. So it was, mm. it was hard because I did it in the first two and a half years of my career. I don't know how long you were in it before you did travel. I was about two years in maybe. So I was still a young nurse mm -hmm. when I traveled, but it was the time to do it. It's very interesting. Yes. I think everyone should try it. I do too. And as I get closer to retirement, I think I, I could do that gig again, <laughs> actually. I'm just going to get a sprinter's van and put my disabled dog in it. Well, I mean, you know, during the, during the pandemic, that's, it was a, a high demand for travelers. So I have a lot of staff nurses as well as NPs do local. <laughs> because of the pay. Stopped being an NP, went back to being a bedside nurse for a couple of years and made a lot of money. But as you know, many talk about when you travel, you kind of get crapped on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a whole nother episode. Okay. See, we already got tangential. So how are you? See? Welcome to 2024. I haven't seen okay. you since last oh year. Oh my God. I haven't talked to you since last year. <laughs> I know. It's a long time ago. I'm so, well. Are you good? I'm, I'm as good as one could be. How's that? How's that? That That's decent. How, how's practice in 2024? How's that ICU? Busy as ever. Um, this year's different. Um, the past four years, 
you know, going into the pandemic and during the, the worst of the pandemic and then the pandemic recovered. And then this past year, we we were all in healthcare trying to figure out how to handle all these respiratory viruses. And then all of a sudden winter season came, we yes. didn't have any mitigation efforts going on. So we have new strains coming out and I, it's, it's tough. I don't think acute care is any different than primary care. You know, that it, it, it's just the system's overwhelmed. So it's so funny that you say that here is a trend I've noted. We haven't been podcasting that long, but every single healthcare provider that I talk to and that we have on here marks time in their career by the pandemic. You have That's to, because it, it's it permanently scarred you. It, it did. It permanently scarred us. We talked to Jessica Peck yesterday and Jessica is um, a past president of NapNap. She became president in 2019, right before the pandemic. She's a Baylor. Uh, she practices and her specialty, she opened the first DNP based pediatric NP program at Baylor. And she marked time the same way. So when she came into her presidency, they surveyed their constituents at NapNap, all these pediatric nurse practitioners. And we didn't, I mean, we haven't talked about kids much other than school got messed up in their lives. And she, she said a third of their constituents were looking to leave healthcare entirely post-pandemic and 90% of them had concerns for their own mental health. And this was two years out, three years out. So, well, how do you think the acute care NPs are doing? We're not, we're not, we're not going there. We're not going there. Um, as an acute care NP that actually suffered burnout during the pandemic, someone who never thought that he would burn out, um, that's what it's done to acute care, is that everyone's different. Everyone is, everyone's charred. So I, 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 I read an article a long time ago that talked about, you know, the, the incidentals or the, the the intangible things that happen in healthcare and that happen for me in acute care is that it leaves this, what, it, what we call residue, it leaves this residue on you that like it doesn't go away. Um, you know, whether you want to admit that it's as severe as PTSD, it comes up in forms like that because, you know, you'll be having a perfectly fine day and then something will happen in your practice that reminds you of a moment that has changed you and it it affects you so yeah we're not going we're gonna go we're not going too deep into that one terry we're not no going too deep I, I do want to say that i think that's true right so if we sit and the military has known this for a long time since they started looking at it post vietnam and they were still calling it shell shock right? And Vietnam now is over 50 years, is repeated exposure to trauma. We know rewires the brain. We know so much about trauma. And that's what healthcare is. Every day we sign up to go in. I work telehealth now and I still, there's every shift. I worked a shift this week where the first patient out of the gate was a major mental health crisis. Like I needed someone to come to her. And she yeah. would only be on the phone with me, locked herself in the car. And here I am. So I know, and it's every shift, right? That you do, 
it's got to affect us. And healthcare is not addressing that. We've been dispensable as providers, nurses, it's, nurse practitioners, physicians. You're going we'll to get me off on a horrible tangent. So. <laughs> but I, I think you have a point. And so to hear Jessica say that yesterday, we think PEDS is all rainbows and unicorns. And it's hard some days, but yay, PEDS primary care. I miss those days. 90% of those pediatric MPs said, I have, my mental health is a mess. If I could, if I could give it a positive spin and it, and I relate it to the, the transformation of lateral violence in healthcare, as well as in nursing in nursing is that I don't think lateral violence has changed much. I also don't think the healthcare system changed pre pandemic to post pandemic. All it did was, the cracks that were already there have mm, opened wider. Yeah. It has exposed those cracks. But more importantly, and this is the, I think this is why we talk about it more, is that we are not taking it anymore. <laughs> That's true. We're, we're done being passive about it. That's a And I think point. that's, and that's the big push, the difference between when you and I started this career to these COVID nurses and you know, nurses that started their career before COVID, they've changed their way of life because now they're speaking up when we used to just let it go. When we, you know, we used to passively just stay quiet, ignore it, or chalk it up to, we just got to get to know them. Yeah. Or you know? it's part of the job. This is just part the of the job. job or they're, they're, they're really good at their job. So we just allow that to happen, you know? So, and that's the difference is that we're now speaking up. We're not taking it anymore. Now, there's a lot of things that we can't change. There's a lot of things that we still have to suck up and deal with. But for, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just hope that maybe 40 to 50% of the stuff that we used to just accept, we're no longer accepting or we're fighting them. You know, we're, we're, we're being the unsilent majority finally. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I hope advocacy. And we've seen that there are other things we can do. We don't have to stay in that. And it, you know, it, the pandemic made us realize that there are other options, that we are not stuck. No matter how bad we feel about a job or about a career, that if you truly are that unhappy or it is affecting your mental health, there are options. It may not be an equal option, but there are plenty of options out there. And I think that's, that also, you know, magnifies the, the staffing problem because people are not staying somewhere just because out of fear or out of not willing to change, you know, so people are leaving. Yeah. And, and that costs the system every time yeah. they have to rechain or bring someone in. But and... nobody's fixing it where it needs to be fixed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can. I, I'm hopeful. Like 2024 already, insulin is 35, no more than $35 a vial across the board. That hasn't happened in my career. I've been waiting for this moment. And so I have hope. <laughs> there are new outlets too. for healthcare and access that are good, where people aren't marginalized or if they live two hours from wherever, they can still get care. I think there are good things happening. So I like there that. Are. There are, but I always, 
you know, I'm a realist. I'm not, I'm a, I'm a realist. Not yeah. you. No. No. So well, I'm going to get Chia Jettel. Wait, I'm going to, you know, go, I do go this. For it. Okay. So what do you do to cope? What are you doing personally? You're like, I got three shifts in a row. What am I doing to prep? And what am I going to do to decompress? I don't know. I, I wish I could answer that. I think I'm still working on that. I'm a work in progress. You know, I, um, you know, for your listeners, you know, during the pandemic, I broke both mentally and physically. So I not only had severe burnout working in the worst of the, of the pandemic in the ICUs, but I also finished my doctorate in the middle of that. <laughs> and I also underwent Oh, if someone it, wanted to be punished, let yeah. me count the ways. Oh, wait, there's more. <laughs> and then on top of that, I ended up going and having major back surgery with a three-level laminectomy. So so everything that could break broke for me. So I at least know, I know 1,000% what rock bottom is for me because I hit it. So I, I, I use that as a measuring stick. Right. I know it's bad, but it's yeah. not as bad as, you know, 2021 in my, in, in my, my mind. So I try to stay healthy. I try to try to get the sleep where I can I'm a chronic insomniac. So I get it where, when and wherever I can. And I try my best to not feel guilty about rest. I think that's a really good point. In those of us who go, 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 that yeah. downtime is critical. High performance, you know, these, we as high achievers want to do more, do more, do more. And you get this horrible guilt of on your first day off, taking the day and just sitting on the porch, sitting at the pool, you know, doing nothing or doing something that requires no brain activity or, you know, just focusing on something that you physically enjoy, whether it go for a walk, go for a hike, go for a road trip, just trying to find something that enhances your calm. And I think I that's, think that's where I go with that is that I no longer feel guilty on my first day off because I'm 50 years old. I've had four, four surgeries in eight years. I've been doing this for almost 20 years. I'm a little tired. So after my string of shifts, I, I spend my first day recovering. I, I don't do anything. If I have to do something, sure. But I schedule my do nothing. Oh, I think that's such a great point. The person, <laughs> I, I mean, I work six days a week right now. So that hurt just a little bit. I know you see me. Mm -hmm. Ouch. Um, I, I want to talk about the exercising briefly because I think we're missing the mark sometimes in setting aside. I have a lot of people tell me, well, my job is physical. I'm standing, I'm walking, I'm lifting things. So I don't, I don't need to exercise. And then I exercise like you do. Like it's a priority for me for my mental health. Yes. Because, and as my staff will attest to, they don't want to be murdered in their sleep when I'm in Boston. So they definitely, but it takes more time. I mean, 24 hours in the day sometimes isn't enough for me. So I'm up, I don't get up as early as you do. So what does that do for you? If you get up and work 
out for 40 minutes to an hour before your 6 a.m. 12-hour shift. Bye. 5 a.m. So for anyone that's listening, I'm, I'm not normal. I'm a little inhuman. I set my alarm and wake up at 2.45 in the morning. So at 2.45 in the morning, I wake up, I go work out in my garage gym, and then I go to work a 12-hour shift in the ICU that starts at 5 a.m. That includes a 30-minute commute. So what it does for me is it allows me to do that. And I think that's when that's where people miss. It doesn't make sense until you experience it is that most people are going to say, I I don't exercise because I don't have the time or the energy. Everybody has the time. You just you get to decide where you allot your time. Whether you want to allot it before the day or after the day, I've, I've experimented with both before my day is is achievable for me whereas coming home after 12 hours is not achievable yeah you're fried yeah and then my body just doesn't handle it well so yeah you you only have to do it in small pieces the science Ah. is the science is there you don't need to do an hour-long workout all you get to do is 10 minutes 15 minutes 20 minutes whatever you can get you can only get 10 minutes then you raise your heart rate for 10 minutes you know, you do some strength exercises for 10 minutes. This is not rocket science. There's nothing new about this. It's that everybody feels like if I had the motivation, motivation follows movement. So you have to move first. And I Agreed. never thought that we'd be talking about this on your podcast, but no. that's what it comes down to is that I know firsthand what happens if you don't take care of yourself. If you ignore your health, you end up having surgery that costs thousands of dollars. And the amount of pain that you go through is undescribable. So you get to choose your heart. And I like I like to look at it that way. You get to choose your heart. Life is hard no matter how you do it. You get to choose. If you do nothing, then the hard is going to be getting up the stairs, playing with your children, um, walking with your friends, going out. You know, if you are obese enough, then you don't get to sit in the stands of a sporting event. You don't get to sit comfortably in a plane. That's real. That's that's somebody's life. Or you could choose my heart, which is it sucks getting up at 245 in the morning, but I'm healthier. I'm stronger. I can handle things that I need to handle. Now, do I take it to an extreme? I probably do. I'm a little obsessive. This is something that I love. You don't have to do what I do, but I guarantee you that if you if you give it three months, it'll change your life. It'll change your life in ways that you could never understand. And all you got to do is a lot, 20 to 30 minutes of your day, three to five days a week. And it's the small little increments. It does... I read something I'm trying to remember so I don't waste your time. It's it's <laughs> persistence over time is more important than intensity in the short term. You know, so agreed. People talk about needing the motivation. It's not motivation, it's discipline. It's doing the things you need to do when you don't want to do them. 
that's what that's what success is because you can parlay that into your career. You can parlay that in your career in every way, shape, or form. In order to get where you want to go, you're going to have to make sacrifices. Sacrifices, the time, money, sleep, time with your family, doesn't matter. Your accolades don't come without sacrifice. Your career doesn't come without sacrifice. So does your health. Your health is not going to come without sacrifice. So it's to why like I used to just talk about nursing, but I talk about the the physical aspect of it because it it mirrors it in every way. Like I agree. And if we're talking about how we're going to cope and keep people from burning out. Yeah. I hate those morning workouts. I never go into a workout going, hooray, but I never leave one regretting that I'd done it. But that's the science behind it is that, you yeah. know, the, the endorphins and all that other, all that other yeah. stuff, but it helps me cope with my day. Yeah. It it's does. just, you have to, you have to create a routine and you don't have to do what you do or I do. You do something that you enjoy. You do something that you don't have to convince yourself to do. Will there be days you have to convince yourself? Sure. But isn't that the definition? Is it is it being able to being able to do something over time without losing passion for it? You know, it's it's I don't know. I, I just feel like nobody cares about their health until their health is in jeopardy. Yes. Yes. Well, I see that primary care, right? You know, so it's it's you know, the whole proactive versus reactive mindset. It's the same thing in healthcare, preventative medicine versus reactive medicine by the time you see me bad things have happened and it's too late so preventative medicine keeps you out of my icu preventative medicine keeps you off of ventilators you know it's this is i could just go on (laughs) i know i know well i mean this is why i brought up the exercise because we were talking about you know how you are right now how you deal with that and i i think every stage of a career is different i know how i think about my work now and my life is so different than how i thought about it a decade ago when i was in academia and a decade before that when i was you know in a full time endo practice so I think it changes over time. People need to be gentle with themselves. We talk really negative to ourselves all the time, especially as perfectionists. But this this thing, just prioritizing movement for yourself every day and rest, which you talked about, and we don't do either one of those things enough. And I don't know how to, I mean, we keep saying it and keep saying it, but the health system is not going to give us time to do either one of those things. You know, know, I I did a little bit of, you know, health coaching a long time ago and you have to literally schedule it. You literally have to schedule it. And that's what it comes down to is that for the type A perfectionist overachiever, you schedule it. You know, you're going to work three jobs and do all these other things. So then you schedule your rest, even if that's only half a day, maybe it's only the morning. It doesn't matter. Anything is better than nothing. You know, you've got to start somewhere. And I, it's the same thing. It's the benefit. It's, it's once you experience the benefit, you'll go, Oh, is that how that feels? Maybe I should do that more often, you know? Yeah. So I've started doing yoga nidra. That's a whole nother thing, but it's taken practice and I have to schedule it every day to 15 or 20 minutes. Oh my God. Trying to practice shutting my brain off. Ah. 
What's really funny is that I work with a, a large group of, of APPs, PAs, NPs, and over the past four to five years, because I've been waking up at that ridiculous time now for probably five years. Um, in the beginning, many of my coworkers thought I was crazy. You're nuts. I would never do that. Not with my kids and my schedule and this and that. And just recently, a, a, a group of my coworkers took a photo together at three o'clock in the morning in the gym before <laughs> they came to work. I love it. Because well, it works. Because it does. It works. You feel better through the rest of the you day. And I'm with you. When the day's over, my brain is, I just. Well, I mean, a lot of times, you know, everyone oh, yeah. has family. Everybody has things going on, you know. So evening time, at least in our society in most cases is family time. It's when you sit down to have dinner together or when you, you know, unwind about your day. So it's, you know, for the most part, most people um, tend to not have that kind of time in the evening, but have it in the morning. And you are just going to have to commit to waking up earlier than you used to so that you could fit in the exercise. It's, I promise you, it's really not as hard as you think it is. Um, when you said all that, I don't have anything going in the evening. I'm a curmudgeon. Oh, but that's a whole thing. It is. It's fine. Oh, that's why I practice in the evening. That's what I do. I have a second job. Okay. That's a whole nother thing. So I'm going to go back to practice and acute care because we got tangential, but I think this is a good discussion. Read the script. Read the script. Yeah. (laughs) I go off script a lot. Should we tell your listeners that you and I have known each other just a little longer than most? Sure. How long have we known each other? Probably 15 years. Yeah. And how did we meet? Oh, through the internet. We did. Good old fashioned, the former Twitter. I call it Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, it no. is. Yeah. Well, we, you and I could go tangential on that, yes, especially could. after this last week. I'm like, yeah, I think I'm done with Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But such a great platform to connect and learn. Like I learned from other people. I'm like, this person's doing this and this person's got this research going on. And I used to make my students have chat in Twitter yeah. and learn how to use it, learn how to connect. And well, Too much of a good thing is, is always a bad thing. So, and that's where it comes, that's what happened is that it morphed into something different. In the beginning, it, I think it's every platform. It's every social media yeah. platform. In the beginning, you know, it's, it's the early adopters who decide that they're going to turn it into what they want or everyone's just kind of rooting around trying to figure out what to do with this platform. Like the most recent platform is threads right now threads is is fun because everyone's still trying to figure it out and it it hasn't been it hasn't been littered with the negativity i'm just gonna go with that that's probably the most politically correct thing to say that was good yeah i saw you've been playing around in there playing around on there a little bit more as well um i don't think it was too much of a good thing i just you and i are the same age I'm learning in life that nothing, it's just going to sound so pessimistic, nothing lasts, nothing stays the same. We know this human growth and development, we're constantly, everything changes. And so when you have this really amazing thing for a while, hold on to it, enjoy it, be present in it, because it's not going to stay the same. It's not. 
Nothing just like does. everything else, you don't realize how good it is until it's gone. You know that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The good old days of Twitter. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. Social media, that's another show. And we will talk about that. I want to talk about practice because you're in it right now. And At the I, moment. I know. <laughs> until I move to France and own a chalet and marry John Mayer. But that's a whole nother <laughs> John Mayer. DM us. I'll I mean, give you my number. I mean, I'm sure he's listening to the podcast. <laughs> you know, I had to sneak that in there. Okay. So I know I am seeing so much respiratory illness. Plus, it's January, which I, doesn't mean anything in the hospital world, but in primary care, it means everybody's insurance flipped over or they got new mm -hmm. insurance. So I'm getting a new influx of brand new patients who haven't had access to the system oh. in years. And so that's super fun as well, but so much pulmonary. So what's going on? What's the big issue in acute care and ICU right now? And what is the hardest thing? So this is probably two different questions. What's the hardest thing that families are dealing with in the hospital setting? I mean, it. it's still, I, I'm sorry, it's still COVID. It's, it's COVID and the flu. Um, I'm not seeing RSV a lot Okay. in the ICU. I work in the adult world. So if I see RSV, it's too late. It's usually too late. It's usually they're too sick. Um, I'm seeing a mixed bag of COVID, flu A, flu B. Um, I think the public is forgetting how how dangerous the flu can be. I think the public is forgetting that. I mean, sure, we've all been whitewashed with COVID over the past three and a half, four years. Jesus, it's four years. Jesus, it's four years. Twenty twelve. Oh <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is four. Well, four years in March. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um. I think we were probably seeing it before March, but that's another discussion. Well, yeah. So yes, I mean, we've all been thinking it wasn't. That. We didn't get a pandemic until March, but yes. Um, so I respiratory, think... anything respiratory, mostly. And it's interesting because you would think that the sickest of the sick would be COVID and the flu, and it's not. I still get a lot of, you know, COPD exacerbations, aspiration pneumonias. So it's. It's always a mixed bag. This time of the year is tough um, because of, you know, winter. And then this winter, at least in my area of the world, is very different because it's been warmer. It's been a lot warmer. So it, 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 has, it has changed the face a little bit. So everything that we expected to happen in the fall is now happening in the spring because, yeah. because our winter, our snow was really not that bad. I live in the Northeast. So if I'm being honest, then the, the winter has, has had moments of horrid, horrid weather, but for the most part, hasn't been that bad. So there's just a little bit of a delay. Um, and the second part of your question is, what are families struggling with? Yes. Is, is the same thing that they've always been struggling with is just the unawareness of the severity of respiratory illnesses. Oh. There are still a lot of families that, I don't know why, but either have not accepted that COVID is real or that vaccines work or that COVID is actually still a concern. Isn't the pandemic over? 
You know, I, we, we get that a lot. The pandemic's over. I think we failed to, we fail, we fail, continue to fail to educate families when it comes to things like that. And I don't know what the answer is, but by the time that I see them, it's, I don't want to say too late, but it's, it's permanently changed lives. How's that? Not too late, but permanently changed lives. Yeah, it's just been so polarizing and there's been so much misinformation on both sides and people and maybe social media is fed into this, believe mm-hmm. only certain things that they believe. And so it doesn't matter as a clinician, I spend a lot of time coaching in primary care, asking people who come in with respiratory symptoms, have you taken a COVID test, right? Cause I'm doing telehealth. Now it doesn't have COVID. And even if it does, it doesn't matter. I said, it changes our course of treatment, right? Whether I give you an antiviral or I tell you we need a flu test, or I think it's X, Y, Z, I need a COVID test. And there's so much resistance because it's been so polarizing, right? The other fun thing we found out in January, 2024 in primary care is Paxlovid is no longer covered by certain entities, including Medicaid. And my most vulnerable adult patients are on Medicaid. And so some states aren't covering it, not every, but oh my gosh, it's $1,400 for five days of Paxlovid as as someone who uh, had COVID in the fall I can I can appreciate that so um oh yeah you had COVID I forgot oh yeah well it's it's the it's the it's the lack of I don't want to it's just that we don't have the mitigation efforts that we had years ago this is the first year that um we stopped masking well, so a year ago, we stopped masking somewhere in the May area, I think, March to May area, where, where most healthcare facilities and most businesses had said, we're now mask-free. So we went through the whole summer with no masks, and we went through the whole win- the whole fall and halfway through the winter of no masking. Yeah. And no matter how what your personal belief is or professional belief is on masking, that is the reason why we're seeing what we're seeing is because of the lack of masks. Is the answer to be masked again until further notice? Probably not. Probably not. But I think I think we're evolving into this season is has taught us that more than likely, once we hit the winter months or the colder months where most of the society is indoors, that we're probably going to have to mask in order to prevent this horrible influx of patients, both in the primary care world and acute care world. I think that the way I am envisioning it is that somewhere in the November area, we're going to start masking and then it's going to be relieved somewhere in the March, April area. It's kind of like, I think it's going to parallel the flu season. Once the flu season is in full effect, I think we're going to see more and more places, probably mostly healthcare facilities, more and more places are going to say, okay, seasonal masking has begun. Because we know that it prevents, at the very least, it prevents the transmission of viral illnesses. Does it prevent you from getting COVID in those severe illnesses? I think it sure, I think it sure minimizes it. Does it completely prevent it? No. 
Does everybody mask accordingly? No. Do we all mask appropriately? No. But some effort is better than no effort. Yep. Like wearing your seatbelt. We've been masking in surgeries for years for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want the surgeon yeah. breathing into my open abdomen. Thanks so much. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, I think that's a good point. I also, um, I, I didn't see as much influenza vaccination uptake, but I'm in telehealth. Like when I was in a physical building, no one got out of my office. <laughs> They're like, this will only hurt a second. Here you go. So I often wonder if the, in m many healthcare facilities, the flu vaccine is required or you have to have an exclusion criteria and you have to jump through a lot of hoops. If you are a healthcare worker and working in many facilities, you are required to get the flu vaccine. I often wonder if over the next couple of years, they're going to either require that to be COVID as well, or they're going to turn it into a combo vaccine so that it's a respiratory vaccine for both COVID and flu. Well, we did it with tetanus and pertussis, yeah. right? We added pertussis right back into that tetanus so that people would get pertussis because whooping cough. I mean, I practiced mm -hmm. in the Midwest. The Ozarks, Northern Arkansas, Southern Missouri was a hotbed of pertussis. And yes, we saw it in adults, but what was happening is all these kids who were not getting vaccinated were then getting pertussis. And I was, we saw kids die of pertussis again, which is whooping cough. Like we should have eradicated that. And that was, I've been- not in the Ozarks for a long time. So I agree with you. Vaccinations, such a great medical advancement. All right. So families don't realize how we're just going to keep talking here. We could, we'll wrap this up in a sec. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to actually change topics. So we're going to keep talking. Okay. My staff doesn't know it. <laughs> I, I want to talk about families in the ICU in general. What is it that shocks a family that we could do better with, you know, nobody prepares for an ICU stay unless they're coming in for surgery and they know they're going to be there post most people it's and families. It's this very traumatic experience. What is the thing that they don't realize across the border that they struggle with the most that healthcare providers, either in acute care or primary care could help those families cope with a little bit better. Besides the bill that comes. Okay, yeah, this <laughs> is going to sound. So I'll answer your question and I'll explain it. So the answer is that death is not a failure of the system. Oh, that's a good one. So we as a society, we as a healthcare community, somehow, some way have created this false observation that when someone is dying or has died, that it's a failure on somebody's part, whether it's a failure in the healthcare system, failure with the healthcare personnel, failure with the families not doing the thing that they needed to do, or just someone quote unquote giving up. When in reality, it's part of life. It's, it's what happens and that we should better prepare ourselves our families our healthcare personnel for those conversations the death conversations we i think we we glaze over 
the code status conversation. We just glaze right over it. Yeah. Most people, when they come into the hospital, so you take these medications, this your past medical history, and this, blah, 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 blah. And oh, by the way, you want to be a full code? And just keep going. Instead of having a little bit more of an in-depth conversation on, the way that I approach it is, so everybody has asked this question when they come into the hospital. What would you like us to do for you in a case of an emergency? So if your heart stops or it goes into a funny rhythm, do you feel if it's something that I can treat, something that I can reverse, would you like me to treat that? Because if I do treat it, there is a chance that you're going to have a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. Or depending deficits on, post-treatment. Depending on the patient and their presentation, that conversation will go differently. And then the next part of the conversation is the heart and the lungs work together. So if I've treated your heart, what would you like me to do if your breathing gets so bad? If your breathing gets bad enough, are you okay with me putting you on a machine that has a mask? And if that doesn't work, are you okay with me putting a tube down your throat so that I can breathe for you? If it's something that I can treat, something that I can reverse. And then everybody always follows up with, I don't want to be on a machine forever. And then we have that conversation but it sparks the conversation as opposed to all or nothing. You know, I hate when families aren't given a quality conversation in regards to what happens when something goes wrong. And by the time they come to me, it's too late. The conversation is too late. They're, they're speaking from a place of emotion they're speaking, they're speaking from a place of save them, save me. I'm not ready to die. But it's over 20 years, over and over again, it always comes down to just because we can do it doesn't mean we should. So I always have that conversation is that just because I can put you on a ventilator, just because I can you know, consult the surgeon to do a tracheostomy and a peg tube doesn't mean I should. So it's not about quantity of life. It's about quality of life. Right. And I think, and I think we all, we, most of us miss that mark. I know we did for years in PEDS and PICU and NICU because no one's ready to have that conversation, but I hear you. And I wonder, I don't know when we should be doing that in primary care. Clearly, anybody that's admitted to the hospital should have that conversation. But again, shortage of staff, time, et cetera. You know, we I know there's a lot of facilities because of size and staffing. But, um, palliative care is a wonderful service, both in primary and, you know, acute care doesn't matter. And. I think we wait too long to consult them for their expertise. I think that if you have someone who comes in with more chronic than acute problems and comes in with a, an acute problem, whether the first time or the fifth time, I think it would behoove you to consult your palliative care team so that they can start having that conversation of how would you like to die? Not what you want to do in an emergency, but how would you like to die? Oh, that's a much better way to frame it because we're all going to be there, right? So we're all, all going to die. What's your how ideal you and how do we get that there? Oh, I like that. And I everybody usually follows note. up with, you know, I don't want to be in pain. I don't want to suffer. And if you tell that to any patient in any family that you want to try and minimize pain 
and minimize suffering, there's nobody that will look at you sideways for that. Because when they say, yes, I, I don't want that. Okay, so what that looks like is this. Because you're now of this age and you have a sick heart and you have failing kidneys. If I do all these things for you, you will go through a great deal of pain, a great deal of suffering to probably not get better. Here's what we can do to minimize the pain. Here are the things that I can do for you up to a certain point. And then when we get to that point, we all agree that enough is enough and that we just let nature take its course and we keep you comfortable. That's beautiful. Let's, let's, let's stop there because I still want to talk about stuff. Um, I, no, those are great words to go out on. I think even in primary care, we've been talking about acute care. We talked about how things are, talked about how you're coping. I think we've, we left some good nuggets. I think having this conversation before people get to the hospital is critical. I have a lot of patients in primary care with 10 different diagnoses in their 60s or 70s who are clearly backsliding and we don't start that palliative care conversation. So that's a take home for the primary care. I I want to talk to you about students. Can you stick I around? <laughs> I know, I know. So what I want to do is wrap this up and then be like, and in part two, okay. we're going to talk about new NPs and NP students and NP education, just a little bit. Can you stick around for that? Of course. Oh, look at me pushing the envelope. Okay. So for everyone listening, I'm going to wrap up this episode with Sean, but I do want to talk to him about new students NP new NPs to practice acute care practice where we're kind of missing the mark because I think you're gonna you're gonna help us in this. So for all of you listening, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Friends of NPs podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, leave a review, find Sean on social media. Is it Sean P Dent or is it yeah, Sean Dent? Um, Sean pretty Dent? easy to find. Okay, you can find him. He's great. Uh, episode two and five of ours here actually have free CE credit if you need some CE. So check us out there. We're on all the major podcasting platforms. And thanks for tuning in. 